Section 3, Clunder College, Writing Bulletproof Code. ADC, Apps Developer College, was more a curriculum than a college, run by Dan Newell, email Dan N, and Doug Clunder, email Doug K. It was called Clunder College because Doug created it. ADC was basically a couple of three-ring binders of assorted documentation and memos and a bunch of self-paced coding exercises that constituted a new and unique approach to onboarding at Microsoft at a time when most everyone who programmed was self-taught. The idea of a programming orientation or boot camp seemed unnecessary, perhaps even insulting. I would take away much more than I could really understand at such an early juncture in my career as I immersed myself in my first lessons of culture. Doug had a strong appreciation of the history of apps and documented the early days extensively. I'd like to read an excerpt from the ADC binder where he explained the history of the earliest apps because it's really important to the story. Another thing we learned was that the world didn't always share our view of how applications should be divided. Most notably, Lotus demonstrated with 123 that the world wanted their spreadsheet and graphics applications combined. On the other hand, they also showed with Symfony that it wasn't necessary or even desirable to include all applications in one program. Similarly, Productivity Software Incorporated showed with AppleWorks that low-end users did want to combine all their applications into one program. We have responded to those desires by reshaping our own view of the application family. Excel combines spreadsheet and graphics, though multiplane and charts still both exist, and Works, both on the Mac and PC, combines all applications into a simplified form for the low-end user. Perhaps the most important thing we learn is that it's an awful lot of work to produce the level of product that people will demand today. No major application can be produced by a single programmer. Several require 10 or more programmers. Moreover, the programmers are merely the tip of the iceberg, even within development, ignoring the large efforts necessary in tech writing, user ed, and marketing. To support the programmers, we need a lot of computer resources and also human resources to produce the development tools and common libraries necessary. Although it is easy to think that most resources should be provided, it is also instructive to look at what a commitment has already been made. When applications started in 1980, all work was done on one PDP-11 shared with the Xenix development team. No special tools existed at all. By late 1981, applications had entirely taken over that PDP-11 and the first versions of a number of basic tools had already been written. Within the next year, a completely new debugger had been written, the foundation of the current one, and we'd begun to use a 68,000 Xenix system in addition to the PDP-11 system. The next year saw several additional 68,000 Xenix systems added and major enhancements to tools. By this point, just making sure that the various tools ran under all the environments we were using, PDP-11, 68000, Xenix, Mac, and PC, was a major task. And for the next couple of years, only minor enhancements to the tools were added. The next major thrust of resource expansion started in 1985 and continues today. As a side note, today is the late 1980s, 1988 and 89. The standard development environment changed from Xenix to DOS, though some Mac projects are still developed under Xenix. Each programmer got a dedicated DOS machine, originally a 286 and by now a 386. All were linked together via networks. This naturally required major tools development efforts in order to port all tools to DOS, 
But at the same time, the tools group managed to produce an entirely new source code control manager, reflecting the needs of the more complicated projects. By now, the tools group had become one of the larger projects. In addition to supporting and enhancing the basic development tools, it is also developing several major libraries of common code that are used in a number of projects. As an aside, the tools group is the one I originally and officially joined. The final major change over the years had been the movement from text-based interfaces to graphical interfaces. When applications were first formed in late 1980, there were essentially no graphics available on personal computers. Even with the introduction of the PC, the graphics available were very slow and low quality. Under those circumstances, text-based interfaces were inevitable. The first graphical interfaces that were designed for applications were for the Macintosh. At that time, we found out how much more work was necessary but how much nicer the result was. Most teaching was done during meetings with Dan and usually by stopping by or hovering in his office. Even though we had offices, there was a constant roaming of the hallways and stopping by unscheduled to see people. This, I would soon learn, was the Microsoft management and learning culture. Self-sufficient, informal, and interrupt-driven. A specific computer term that had become one of my first Microsoftisms or microspeak. What's the best way to meet them? Oh, they're interrupt-driven. It was a big change from the structure of universities, but also consistent with how most everyone there had learned PC programming in the early days. Dan's office was filled with vinyl records, a stacked stereo system, and a few early 80s music posters. He was an experienced Microsoft SDE and was half the leadership of ADC. A few doors down was Doug. In contrast to Dan's office, Doug's office was completely Spartan, as though he'd only recently moved in. Doug looked like a member of the Doobie Brothers, with long beard, flannel shirt, cords, and no shoes ever. He was exactly what my mother had warned me about. Doug was a programming legend at Microsoft. After graduating from MIT, he joined Microsoft as the first college hire and subsequently an informal leader in the quest to hire directly from college, especially into apps. He was one of the earliest apps SEEs and had written much of the code in an early spreadsheet for MS-DOS that Microsoft released as Multiplan, but was called Electronic Paper, or EP, while under development. The online version has a photo of Doug speaking at a whiteboard that was featured in the college recruiting magazine. Dan told me that Bill G. decided the company's future was on graphical interface, the GUI, like OS2 and Macintosh, so the company chose not to bring an updated MS-DOS GUI, or character interface, spreadsheet to market. Doug was so frustrated by this decision that he quit Microsoft and went off to work on a farm in California. Doug's innovative work was critical to Mac Excel 1.0, which ultimately shipped for the original Macintosh. He had later returned to help finish Mac Excel 1.0 and contribute broadly to apps in the transition to GUI. Doug was the ideal person to indoctrinate us into the ways of Microsoft apps. My first day had been a success, or at least not a failure. After a few weeks at ADC, I finally received an email from Scott Randall, email Scott RA, my boss. He suggested that we meet the next day, first thing. How about 11 a.m.? Microsoft SDEs boarded on Nocturnal in those days. This was consistent with how college programmers coped with the scarcity of computers. It was always best to work late at night when fewer people were trying to get to terminals and, if on a shared mainframe, slowing it down. Everyone was working at nights at, office, at the office back then. There was no way to even do email from home and certainly not any coding. The old Xenix email system made it easy to see if a person was logged on, 
and rumor was that Bill G was always checking in on key people to see if they were connected. These were all traits of the original hacker ethos that had worried my mother when I took the job. When Microsoft, when asked if Microsoft had flex time, an 80s buzzword, by prospective college hires, we always said, yes, you can choose to work whichever 80 hours of the week you want to work. That was essentially true for the 90s. Our views later matured, as did the company, much to the chagrin of new old timers like me. Most, mostly we were in our 20s and loved what we were doing. Scott explained what was in store for me for the next few months. Before programming anything, I needed to learn the unique dialect Microsoft used for programming. While I knew the programming language, Microsoft had a unique style called Hungarian, named for Charles Simone, email Charles S., one of the rarefied level 14 architects in the company and the only one in apps. Charles was recruited by Bill G. from Xerox Park, that famous Palo Alto Research Center, where he built the first GUI word processor. Hungarian was the secret handshake used between programmers at Microsoft, and it was unlike anything I'd ever seen. In college programming or books, one might name, use a name in code such as format line. In Hungarian, we use names like F format line FS spec, which were chosen to make code more manageable for large teams. In order to explain this, the online version has some examples of Hungarian from my ADC learning materials. I also need to learn the tools used to build Excel and Word. There were a proprietary programming language called CSL, also named after Charles Simone. This language, based on C, had a virtual machine, which made it easier to run on other operating systems in theory, and also had a good debugger, attributes that were lacking in the relatively immature C product from Microsoft. I also learned RAID, the database tool that products use to track bugs in products. Get it? It came complete with the backronym of Reporting and Incidents Database. And most importantly, I learned SLM, pronounced SLIME, the source code tracking tool, which is like GitHub, which came much later. Through this, I used shipping code and coded up features and fixed bugs as exercises, never checking them into production. It sounded pretty cool. It was pretty cool. Um, Doug loved P-Code. In reading the history of apps from his developer perspective, the success of P-Code is one of the first things he mentions. P-Code remained a part of some applications for several more years and releases, including products I shipped. Also, a Dougism is goodly amount in tight handcrafted assembly, featured in this quote below. I'd like to read an excerpt from the history of P-Code, as Doug told it. One of the most important decisions made in the development of Multiplan was the decision to use a C compiled to pseudocode or P code. This decision was largely forced by technological constraints. In early 1981, the microcomputer world was mainly composed of Apple IIs and CPM80 machines. They had 8-bit processors and 64K of memory was a lot. 128K was about the maximum. In addition to each of the CPM80 machines was a little bit different. Programs that ran on one would not automatically run on another. P-Code made the development of ambitious applications possible. Compiling to machine code would have resulted in programs too big to fit on the machines. Even with P-Code, it was necessary to do a goodly amount of swapping. It also allowed us to isolate machine dependencies in one place. The interpreter making it for very portable code. All that was necessary to port from one machine to another was a new interpreter. For Multiplan, this was an extremely successful strategy. It probably runs on more different kinds of machines than any other application ever written, ranging from TI-99 to the AT&T 3B series. 
As a side note, I used AT&T 3B in my college work. Of course, P-Code had its disadvantages as well, and we've certainly run into our share. One disadvantage is that it's slow. Many of our products have a reputation for slowness for this exact reason. There were, of course, ways to speed up code, but to get a great deal of speed requires coding a goodly amount in tight handcrafted assembly language. Another disadvantage is our P-Code's memory model. Since it was originally designed when machines had very little memory, the original P-Code specification supported only 64K of data. It was not until Multiplan 1.0 was developed that in 1983, P-Code was extended to support larger data spaces. A final disadvantage of P-Code is that we needed our own special tools in order to develop with it. Most obviously, these included a compiler, linker, and debugger. In order to support these, there had been a tools group within the application development group almost from the beginning, and we have so far been largely unable to take advantage of the development effort in other parts of the company in producing better compilers and debuggers. It should be noted that the tools group is responsible for considerably more than just P-Code support these days. Although portability was one of the goals of P-Code, it became apparent fairly early on that simply changing the interpreter was not sufficient for porting to all machines. The major problems lay in the different I.O. environments available. For example, a screen brace program designed for use on a 24 by 80 screen does not adapt well to different screen arrangements. To support radically different environments requires rewriting the code. We decided the effort was worth it for two special cases, the TRS-80 Model 100, the first laptop computer, and Macintosh. In retrospect, the Model 100 was probably not worth the effort, but Macintosh proved to be an extremely important development. I love talking with Doug. He was not like anyone I had spent a lot of time with. He was truly the hippie hacker culture Time Magazine described. As I got to know him, I learned some of his relatively extreme perspectives. He was obsessed with privacy. He didn't have a driver's license, a bank account, telephone, or anything, but he still lived among us. I often saw him outside of work. We lived in the same neighborhood, Capitol Hill, soon the heart of grunge music, where he always paid cash at one of the restaurants in the neighborhood. This dedication to privacy proved even more ironic and prescient as he went on to build Microsoft Money, which he used to track his cash transactions. In his post-Microsoft career, Doug became an attorney and admirably went on to work for the ACLU on issues such as privacy. He was really ahead of his time. Importantly, for my own future, Doug instilled in me a sense of principled product development. Throughout my time at ADC, Doug shared his account of the decisions around building Mac Excel instead of the new MS-DOS spreadsheet that he championed, including a famous red lion in offsite where the strategic decision was made to bet on the graphical interface. Bill G. insisted on prioritizing GUI over CUI, even with a potentially killer MS-DOS spreadsheet close to complete, causing Doug to ultimately quit out of principle. Doug's principled lessons followed me throughout my career. Doug was an incredible programmer, the first of many amazing ones I met. He had a full map of an entire body of code in his head and a deep understanding of the data structures and code paths. More than encyclopedic, but organic, as though his brain had merged with the code. In hindsight, I came to understand that great programmers have the same relationship to code and products as great writers do to words and complete works, or filmmakers do to camera shots and complete films. Every line of code, every data structure, was not only deliberate, but deeply related to the other ones and the other choices one makes. 
One issue we spent an enormous amount of time discussing was memory management, which was an acute problem in PCs those days, how to fit more information in less space. This was not simply about data, but also the amount of code in an application, how to do more with less. Doug recounted how he had developed minimal recalc for Excel, originally for the unreleased spreadsheet product, which was a way of only recalculating the cells of a spreadsheet that needed to be calculated when something changed. Previously, every change in a spreadsheet recalculated the entire sheet, which was slow and memory intensive. It is difficult to overstate the brilliance in Doug's approaches. It would be equally fair to say that Doug wrote code only Doug could understand, very much how great products were built back then. Many of the conventions or techniques used in apps were pioneered by Doug and taught, or more correctly, transfused to us in ADC. Even though software products were often late, very late, and quality was spotty, very spotty, that was only in hindsight. In general, Microsoft's apps, particularly MS-DOS Word and later Excel, were generally among the most robust and highest quality available. Doug and Dan instilled several key lessons about being an apps software design engineer. Scheduling and estimating work. Individuals need to be really good at scheduling their own work and coming up with estimates that were not only precise to the day, but accurate as well. Bulletproof code. Developers are responsible for building code beyond their features, including the code that ran in debug mode that was constantly checking the integrity of data structures and ensuring that assumptions made by programmers were validated. During any code review in ADC, the code was sent back if it was not fully defined by what were called debug asserts or code that was run to verify the values of variables and integrity of data structures while running a special build of the product for this purpose. Self-documenting code. Schools taught that good code had comments or annotations that were not code, but English that explained the code. Doug hated comments and insisted that code should be the ultimate comment itself. This was a bit ironic because he was known for developing some insanely efficient code that was also difficult to read and probably would have benefited from comments. His view was that comments were always out of date and far less precise than the code itself. I really had to unlearn commenting, a practice I had really embraced in college. Performance in speed and minimal memory. CPUs were slow and memories was, memory was extremely scarce, so there was a big focus on writing efficient code. This was rooted in Bill G and was an important part of Microsoft's early developer culture and a key contributor to success. Code written this way was hardcore. During ADC, I built a memory allocator, code that handled requests from a program to provide memory to store data and then later free that memory for other uses. Early programs, especially written in C or CSL, were notorious for mismanaging memory, which caused program crashes and in turn crashed the entire computer along with it. Doug had developed a set of ideas for building a bulletproof memory allocator, one that tracked allocations and reallocations and made sure memory was properly initialized before use in the code. These were super common bugs in PC software. Doug wrote a memo included in my ADC documentation that included his debugging philosophy. He had a lot of memes for writing solid code. Debug data, not code, was his meme for debugging, which he explained in a complete set of instructions on using the P-code interpreter and debugger. I just want to read a quick excerpt that defines debugcode.data. Although often overlooked, this is probably the single most important debugging principle. Debugging code usually doesn't tell you a whole lot. What you see is code executing, and you don't know whether it should or should not. 
The most code in your program should execute in some circumstances. The thing that tells you what your code should do is the data. Since the data is what drives the program, the data is what you should examine. The excerpt goes on to explain in detail how to debug code. It's really amazing. It was a huge learning experience, but I also had been working on modern automatic memory management called garbage collection or GC in graduate school. After a few days at hacking away on my memory allocator project for Doug, I worked up the guts to approach him and ask him why Microsoft did not use GC. Well, that didn't go well. Doug literally laughed at me. Still, after I persisted, he suggested I go meet John Devon, email John D. On the Excel team, who could go through every bug in Excel, it was up to version 2.x and now running on Windows, and explain how many came from bad management and code. Doug knew that his memory allocator, also my programming exercise, was a significant barrier to creating memory allocation bugs in the first place. He just wanted me to see for myself. John didn't laugh at me like Doug had. Rather, he listened and then indulged me by going through 30 minutes of RAID searches looking for memory management bugs to see if GC would have fixed them. GC would have prevented perhaps eight of 7,500 bugs in Excel. That made for a convincing argument that GC was not remotely worth the trade-off in memory and performance. GC would eventually become standard practice on the web on an Apple's iPhone, but I was a decade too optimistic. The online version has a photocopy of a screenshot of the early RAID screen. John was among the best Microsoft had ever produced, in addition to being one of the best engineering managers to have ever worked at the company. We worked together for the remainder of my time at Microsoft, each of us with unique strengths, making each other better at what we did. I spent an inordinate amount of time installing Microsoft products and using them. I developed my own method for using a network boot disk and getting a clean PC up and running. This skill seemed to be both necessary and something that each person reinvented on his or her own. PCs barely worked. One product I spent a lot of time on that was still under development, Windows 3.0, a year away from finishing, but was already the buzz of the developers running it. At the time, the mainstream SDE machine was running OS2 because it was able to use more memory and handle more programs gracefully. But it also had a lot of limitations, such as a lack of apps and the inability to print. There were always... There was always much discussion in the cafeteria about how lame OS2 was, wondering what was going on over in systems with our partnership with IBM. Windows 2 was already in market and had some early pioneers supporting it, including Ray Ozzy at Lotus, who had developed the innovative Notes product. The biggest supporter of Windows 2 was Excel, which was also developing version 3 of Excel to be on both Windows and Mac and OS2 all at the same time using an innovative cross-platform layer of software. The online version has a screenshot of Windows 2 compared to Windows 3. Back then, buyers did not get a PC with Windows. PCs came with MS-DOS. Using Excel meant buying Excel, and it came with Windows. According to branding and packaging, Windows was an operating environment, or more like an app on top of MS-DOS. This became the subject of antitrust consternation years later. As innovative and successful as Excel was on the Mac, Excel on Windows was not competitive with MS-DOS, Lotus 1.2.3, the market leader. Microsoft's older CPM and later MS-DOS spreadsheet multiplan was of distant number two. Windows 3 was a bit of a skunkworks project and was a bet on a new architecture called protected mode, which enabled multiple programs to operate at the same time and to share a larger amount of memory. 
In many ways, this was also what OS2 was supposed to do, but OS2 had a much grander vision as well as a difficult partner, engineering partner in IBM, or as IBM might say, it was Microsoft that was the difficult partner. Windows 3 was beginning to look more like an operating system and less like a skunkworks add-on to MS-DOS. It was interesting to install and play around with, which all of us did. Actively under development were versions of Word and Excel and several other products for Windows 3. We spent the summer trying everything. Dan shared with me what he was most excited about. One of the key secrets of Windows 3, which was how the product enabled protected memory, but could also be compatible with old MS-DOS programs. David Weiss emailed David W. and Murray Sargent emailed Murray S. had invented some novel uses of the Intel chipset that even Intel did not anticipate, which enabled these efforts. One programming trick called Presto Changeo Selector was a key hack they had developed and later became an absurd symbol of secret application programmable interfaces in Windows. It was absurd because it was supposedly secret when in fact it was right there to see. Dan told this story with great pride as the development of Windows 3 and these techniques represented much of what Microsoft did so well in those days. Hack. The online version has a page excerpt from the book Microsoft Inside and Out for Microsoft's 25th anniversary featuring David W. describing Presto Change Selector. I admire Dan. What Doug brought to ADC in Insights for Coding, Dan brought in big picture about how products were built and team dynamics. Dan knew everyone at the company and was definitely a cool kid. Because of Dan, I got to meet quite a few of the senior people across both apps and systems. Systems was pretty okay to apps, people, and vice versa, but there was clearly both an organizational and cultural divide between the two, a theme that I would experience for many years to come and also be the subject of many battles. The online version includes an org chart of the entire apps division at the time, the reason Dan could know everyone is because everyone was not that many people. You can see, for example, Excel was about 15 engineers with about 175 engineers in all of apps, half of which had been hired in the past year. A few months in, Scott came by and said he was anxious for me to join the team. My time in ADC was abbreviated so I could get cracking on our project. Unbeknownst to me, I was joining a newly formed Tiger team created to build an entirely new product to streamline building applications. Object-oriented, GUI, and Microsoft's next killer product. Plus, Scott told me our project was super important to Bill G. 